0: Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing Continued Learning Podcasts, Adolescent Eating Disorders, and Occupational Therapy with our guest, Dr. Lindy Weaver. Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Dennis Cleary. I'm a senior researcher at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and I'm really happy today to be joined by my good friend Dr. Lindy Weaver. And Dr. Weaver, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, some of your background related to adolescent mental health and eating disorders?
2: Welcome, thanks for having me today. Um, So my primary practice background um, over the last 12 years has been in um, child and adolescent um, mental health in a variety of settings. I've both been on the residential, the inpatient side for much of my career, but I've also spent several years um, working in a um, partial hospitalization and an intensive outpatient program for adolescents with eating disorders. Um, and I'm currently, I currently spend much of my time in the academic setting teaching about mental health and pediatrics in an OTD program.
1: What program is that, Dr. Weaver?
2: <laughs> I am currently located in Columbus, Ohio at The Ohio State University.
1: I've heard good things about that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you also uh, have some clinical time as well, working uh, with adolescents with eating disorders.
2: Yeah. So I have uh, spent several years working um, part-time, doing so, less so in the last few years, um, particularly with um, COVID. And I had um, the birth of my third child. But yes, I've spent um, several years working um some hours at our local children's hospital, who um, is one of the primary um, service providers for um, young people with eating disorders in um, our area and beyond.
1: And you helped them, they recently o- opened kind of a larger hospital, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. It's kind ab- of exciting that we have some growth in occupational therapy and mental health right now.
2: Absolutely, especially here in Ohio. So. Uh, yeah, Nationwide Children's opened up their behavioral health pavilion um, in 2020. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but they are one of the largest now um, pediatric and adolescent facing mental health centers in the country. And they are serving young people and their families across the age range. So from basically from pre-K all the way through um, high school and some of the um, the young adulthood um, ranges for young people who have been under their care prior to entering into adulthood. And they are um, servicing young people and their families that um, from the inpatient side, from um, outpatient, as I said, for some of the programs under the partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient programs as well, and doing a lot of community um, and school-based outreach as well. So very um, huge and um, impactful program.
1: Yeah. And they have, how many occupational therapists are there now?
2: Oh, my goodness. They have a wide um, array, but I believe they are up to probably six to eight in their their group. I could be um, under shooting a little bit.
1: Gotcha. I know I I saw them at lunch at AOTA this year, and there were a lot of them. Oh, yeah. I remember that. So anyway, well, so um, could you just tell us a little bit about um, what is an eating disorder and kind of talk about maybe some different types of eating disorders that – that uh, occur, especially in this adolescent age group?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, well, eating disorder is a really broad term. And as um, you and many others will know, and so eating disorder in the DSM, it does encapsulate um, a wide variety of disorders, everything that includes some of the ones that you may um, encounter in more developmental pediatrics. So um, eating disorders such as PICA, or um, sort of selective eating um, and restrictive eating um, that you might see, say, in our autistic populations. Um, so under this huge category, there are all of um, you know all of those um, disorders that are part of it. But I think our focus today in talking and what we are often thinking about when we hear the term eating disorder as an umbrella, we're thinking about our more um, our binge eating disorder, anorexia nervosa, bulimia. Um, and a few others, but those will probably be the three primary ones I'll focus on because they are um, some of the more common ones to impact um, our adolescents that we might be seeing, um, and certainly on into adulthood as well for, um, for some folks who are in adult care. But yeah, so those, so yeah, big umbrella term, but we're really, um, usually I think when folks are thinking about eating disorder, they're thinking about um, you know anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, um, and so on less so some of the other types of feeding and eating disorders that we see in a lot of other, um, uh, practice settings.
1: Gotcha. Especially, you know, obviously I specialize in folks with intellectual disabilities. So those, the couple that you mentioned, certainly we see a lot of those. So could you just talk a little bit about what like anorexia or define it or talk a little bit about it? Uh, bulimia and then binge eating disorder.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it'll be interesting. We'll, we we'll, I think we hear the most about anorexia, and, um, and bulimia nervosa. Um, again, as we'll talk about some of the impacts, I think it's, it's, um, because some of the impacts that these disorders have, um, binge eating disorder is actually the most common, um, eating disorder in, um, in the U S but we'll start with anorexia is one of our more um, commonly known and um, it is often characterized by, a, you know, a wide variety of um, symptoms, but some of the most common ones being um, sort of um, preoccupation or a, an intense focus on food, weight, um, certain types of nutrients, um, and avoiding certain types of nutrients. For example, avoiding, um, you know, calorie restriction or avoiding certain um, groupings like carbohydrates or fat, um, fat grams. Um, anorexia is often sort of, um, how do I say like connected to sort of maybe more extreme sort of dieting if, if um, to use sort of a more local term. Um, but you're often looking at changes in behaviors that uh, might indicate weight loss, um, control of food, avoidance of food. Um, and then alongside of that anorexia, it's not uncommon to see some withdrawal from friends or some of the typical activities. Um, And a lot of concern or focus, um, you know, cognitively on body size, body shape, um, the the physical presentation um, of one's body. And as I said, there's also some, you know, physical indications that um, are common or more commonly noted in anorexia. So um, anorexia nervosa has some of the highest um, health implications because particularly around um, restrictive eating or restriction of um, certain types of foods. It can result in things like low heart rate, um, bone density loss, um, but the heart issue is, is tends to be one of the, the more um, intense or scary of sort of the potential effects. Um, bulimia nervosa is, is similar. They may have some of those um, disrupted eating patterns. But bulimia is sort of characterized by episodes of binge eating. So eating um, large quantity foo- of foods in short periods of time. Um, but the what distinguishes it from a binge eating disorder is that bulimia, uh, individuals experiencing bulimia nervosa will engage in what we call compensatory behaviors. So things to um, sort of offset or are in reaction to the the binging episode. So that would be use of laxatives, potentially purging or or self-induced vomiting, Um, maybe excessive or intense exercise. So um, trying to burn off additional calories. Um, Those are a few of the common examples. And then third, but certainly not least, is binge eating disorder, which is characterized by the consumption of um, large volumes of food in short periods of time um, without those compensatory behaviors. Um, obviously in the DSM, you know, there's all sorts of other qualifying factors over duration, intensity, um, and other co-occurring things. But those are sort of the, the three general ways to sort of think about the diagnoses themselves.
1: Gotcha. And then are, are they prevalent? It seems like, you know, we go through periods when we hear a lot about those on the news. Um, what kind of yeah. prevalence are those three typically so, in the population?
2: Yeah, great question. So, and I'm pulling some of this data from um, some of the compiled um, data under the National Eating Disorders Organization Um, and sort of the way, you know, there's been some different studies, but the way um, you'll, you'll hear that probably on a given year, there's probably 5 million-ish plus individuals, and they're usually categorizing those as adults, but people, um, that might be experiencing some, for, and again, there are other eating disorders, but experiencing an eating disorder in a given year. Um, but what they're finding is that, you know, that at any given point in time, we're looking at less than one percent of young men and young women who are experiencing these. Um, however, we all also think that some of this goes, um, The reporting standards are things that it's probably um, sort of a little bit of an undersell as to what it is. There was a study that was um, done back in maybe 2010, I think is when it was, and they followed about 500 adolescent um, girls um, from ages 8 to 20. And they found that during that period of time, about 5% um, of those um, girls met criteria for either anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. Um, and then when they included sort of non-specific eating disorder symptoms in that study, um, so ones that weren't the DSM specific criteria, they found that um, about 13% of those girls um, experienced an eating disorder by age 20. So it, it's it's hard to categorize, but it there is it does impact a lot of people, and they're depending on I think the type of eating disorder or the presentation or you know what your family and friends are noticing or not, like I think there's probably some that go unrecognized for a really long period of time, if at all.
0: Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code podcast and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today.
1: Gotcha. So you you mentioned gender a little bit, but are there specific issues around gender, age, uh, sexual orientation, race, or ethnicity that um, come into play?
2: Yeah, really excellent question. I'm glad you probed that a little bit because I did quote that one study that was, um, you know, I only mentioned our, our young girls there. And so it's important to note that um, eating disorders um, across the board, they do um, impact um, young boys and, and young men as well. And, um, what the statistics would show is that the reports are lower than those of the young girls and, um, and women. Um, however, that may be when we're looking at a, you know, a sex or a gender difference here, um, I think there, there can be some things that are explained by, um, one sort of the stigma around that there is this sort of stigma that men don't have eating disorders. So, um, it's not unlike some of the um, stereotypes that come along with other mental health diagnoses where it is potentially um, that either the way some young men or boys may be experiencing their eating disorder may, it could look a little different. And so it's not being recognized quite the same way, um, but more likely it's, it's just that they're going underreported than it is that they're not happening. Um, so I think there's that to consider. Some of, I told this story in a class that um, I, I was in a few um, weeks back, and, uh, the, you know, I had worked with some young patients, and we had a, a grouping of primarily young adolescent girls, and but we had a, um, a couple boys in the group at the time, and even the young girls who were experiencing intensive, you know, eating disorder symptoms had some stigma towards, you know, the boys that were in the group, and they said, oh, well, you know, my eating disorder presents this way, but yours probably, you know, you, for example, I was very, I think maybe the young... Um, girl said something that along the lines of being very focused on losing weight or having a lower body weight and this young lady had said to the boy um but you probably wanted to be more muscular or like that was probably your um focus and the young boy had said well actually no mine actually sounds very similar to yours and they were really surprised they even had some of these kind of you know these gender um you know, the way that the eating disorder would be experienced. They sort of thought boys would experience it differently than they would. And that was really fascinating to me. So I think um, thinking about that, it does, there's, eating disorders affect every, you know, gender, age, sexual orientation, race, et cetera, SES status. Um, It really, it doesn't discriminate (laughs) in that way. Um, But I think that was one of the big ones that's come up in my practice. The other one, I don't know that you mentioned this, but we can talk a little bit about this too, is that there is also some, uh, how do I wanna say it? There's some stigma around um, this prototype of what a certain body would look like if it were experiencing a certain um, eating disorder. For example, yes, one of the criteria for anorexia is um, excessive weight loss or inability to, um, to maintain a weight that is congruent with one sort of growth curve in um, childhood and adolescence. Or one that would be expected based on your height and um, you know the way you were growing before, um, but so there's there there's some stigma around that if a body if a person's body isn't particularly thin or overly thin that they must not be able to that their symptoms they must not have anorexia for example, and that's a stigma that's often incorrect. Um, so I think there are are size and body weight and body size. Um, considerations too that um, often get stigmatized and under-recognized too. And on the flip side, there's that same um, sort of stigma that comes across with um, someone in a larger body or with a higher weight. They say, oh, they must have an eating disorder. Well, that's not the case necessarily either. So there's a lot of stigma and those would be sort of the big ones that come to my mind when I think of my practice experience.
1: Sure. When I think of, um, I had some good friends back in high school that were wrestlers, and so I think if you look back at some of the, the behavior they were exhibiting, there's probably, probably diagnostic criteria that they were, demonstrating uh, at at that point as well. You know, it's. Um, but I, I think it's it's just sort of interesting, when you think about, um, you know. So now when you look at. Um, You know some of the restrictive diets that are being uh encouraged in terms of you know intermittent fasting and and some of those things obviously not in terms of of eating disorders but it seems like advice in terms of nutrition can be a little bit all over the place i know that um you probably there's some medical uh dietitians that are in your your school where you teach that i know always had some opinions on that but i don't know if you're if if some of the the um maybe uh, differences in in terms of dietary recommendations, if those kind of can get, you know, kind of mixed in with with, uh, these issues around eating disorders.
2: Yeah, I think that there's some kind of uh, multiple layers that can happen as far as, um, you know, diet culture is really, really prevalent across the world, but really in Western cultures, particular here in the U.S. And um, so I think sometimes, from my experience, what can happen is sometimes an eating disorder can go masked or well accepted because it can fall within what is deemed as the social norm around our healthy eating or diet culture. Um, you know, things that can, um, someone might like, oh, it looks like I'm being really conscious of what I'm eating. And so, and someone says, great, that's, you know, there's sort of a moral value attached to that in our society. And so, um, something can go and recognize for a long time. So some examples of things that I have seen are maybe a young person who um, I'm going to become vegan or a vegetarian. Um, and maybe that was, that's very socially acceptable. It can be very socially conscious, but um, maybe for that young person, it was um, sort of a more socially acceptable way to restrict certain food groups. Um, you know, similarly um, there can just be over a fixation on, on food that is looks very common to maybe someone else who really is trying to improve their heart health or their joint mobility. Um, so I think there, those are some examples that can kind of get folded in there and not recognized as long, or they get reinforcement for that sort of health behavior. But there is also another diagnosis that um, we won't talk, uh, you know, I don't have quite as much experience with, but it might be helpful for you and our listeners to know about, which is called orthorexia, which is actually um, what generally is sort of defined as more of an obsession with proper or healthful eating so it sort of goes beyond the person that's very very health conscious but there is this um there's potentially some um rigidity or less sort of flexible thoughts around food and eating and it is a different kind of eating disorder but um and what was that called one more time it's called orthorexia Mm
1: -hmm. yeah I'll, i'll add that to my my list of things uh to look up, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so are there diagnoses that might co-occur with eating disorders?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The big one to first sort of think about is anxiety disorders sort of broadly. Obviously, you know, there's some specific ones under there. Um, but in some of the eating disorder research, um, anxiety disorders often precede the onset of an eating disorder. Um, in depending on the specific disorder, but they're somewhere in the 10 to 40% range of individuals who have an onset of an eating disorder often either were prior diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or kind of turning back retrospectively, the the anxiety disorder started first. Um, Kind of without too much detail, there is some speculation or not even speculation, but understanding that there is an anxiety sort of driven relationship in um, eating disorder kind of thoughts, behaviors, um, and the maintenance of an eating disorder that um, can really, some of it can be really explained from an anxiety sort of standpoint that um, so they often precede, or many can precede the onset of an eating disorder, but they're also really common to um, occur alongside of an eating disorder, even if it wasn't preceding it. So anxiety, um, depression, being another one of our um, really common ones, an obsessive compulsive disorder, um, maybe some of our um, more common um, co-occurring. Um, and again, I think there are still some, un- there. you'll learn and you'll know that there's a lot to be learned about eating disorders, particularly in, the, in young people. And so um, did one come first versus the other? That, that's harder to say, but they do um, they, they do often co-occur together.
1: So is there kind of a typical age of onset when when eating disorders might kind of begin? Or um, is it something you said that obviously for some people it it manifests into adulthood? Can it start in adulthood? Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah.
2: Well, so goodness. I um, apologize for, I don't know if I know um, some of the specific um, ages of onset, but. Um,
1: Just clinically what you've seen. Yeah. You kind of.
2: So what we do know is that eating disorders can occur across the lifespan. So really from childhood, even into older adulthood, they can have an onset um, beginning at any point in life. Many of the um, eating disorders we're talking about today um, have some onset in that adolescent period, which, um, you know, true adolescence is really defined, you know, um, can be as early as nine, 10 Um, in my clinical experience. um, I tended to see much more our, our young adolescents to middle, you know, sort of our, say our 12 to 16 year olds on average. But we definitely have seen, um, patients as young as six, seven, and, you know, up through the 18, 19 range being in a pediatric setting. So, um, I think what they do find is that particularly in our, our, maybe our young girls, it, um, Symptoms might start earlier, and some of that we can talk about is somewhat related to some of the social factors that might influence um, eating disorders.
1: Gotcha. And so, certainly, some of the people listening are are going to be working with people that have eating disorders. But I think a lot of times, um, you know, it might these we might have occupational therapy practitioners that might be in in public schools or might be in another. Um, other types of settings or even you know with children of their own or nieces nephews that kind of thing Um, so if we think about just things that we should be on the lookout for in terms of you know someone might have an eating disorder what are the types of things we might look uh, at some some symptoms that that you might notice um, in someone that you're kind of treating or, or just even acquaintances with
2: Yeah, you know, that's a a really excellent question. And um, I think, yes, particularly for those who are going to be in other settings, I I did a little survey of my students who had just come off of their um, level one mental health field work. And and most of them who were in an adult setting or a non, um, you know, some inpatient, a whole variety of settings, I said, how many of you have saw someone with an eating disorder? And I'd say almost all 40 of nine of them raised their hands. And this is a, you know, and so again, in adult, primarily adult care, but I think it is really common. um, And if you're looking at, sometimes I've gotten some, you know, questions from other professionals who are working in sports, very, you know, kind of what to keep an eye out for or things. So I think the blanket statement, one, because each disorder looks a little different, To what's socially acceptable or what is sort of typical behavior? Again, on a sports team, you mentioned wrestling. Dropping weight is not unusual, but then you know you're you're trying to look at that. Um, So, I I think the biggest thing to look for is changes. So, changes in the young person's um, behaviors, maybe even their if they express or their statements, particularly around like their bodies, around food around movement potentially, or if you're noticing, again, just changes in the way they interact around mealtimes or around food. Um, You know, for example, some things that they might, you might notice or not notice, or you might be more attuned to, for example, with someone who might be experiencing bulimia would be, you know, are they, um, do they see someone leaving the the meal table very quickly after a meal is consumed, you know, and being gone for a period of time? Does that look like a pattern? That might be something that might, you know, have someone take a little pause, you know, are they, again, going to, you know, or, um, you know, do they have a, a young person who's like, all right, you know, we've had dinner, and now um, I got to go for my evening run, you know, and it seems almost like different or it seems to be a you know is the focus on food or weight maintenance or weight loss is it sort of different than what it was or does it seem like they can't like they're in distress if they're not able to engage in say an exercise pattern that's another thing to look for is like um the flexibility piece so um i have to run every day or i have to do this every day um you know, maybe above and beyond. So those are, so looking for patterns, looking for changes. Um, Some of the other things, again, I've heard families um, mentioned to me is maybe they, the young person, they really used to enjoy, you know, they always went out after Friday night football games with their friends to, right, have ice cream or go to dinner. And maybe they stopped going to those types of things. Um, Or they start saying like, oh, no, I don't want to do the pizza party. Or again, We have a lot of socialization that happens around food and if they start to see some changes in socialization and then there are also some of the more noticeable or common things. Again, are we seeing, you know, high fluctuations in weight, whether it's up or down? And, um, you know, are we seeing any of those other sort of physical indications? Again, they're more fatigued or maybe, um, again, maybe more emotionally, um, you know, maybe more irritable or sad, you know, some things that are indicating that their nutritional status maybe is not um, as balanced as it should be. So, but there's also, yeah, there's that, um, sometimes it is just typical changes in adolescence and sometimes it is um, not quite at the threshold of eating disorder, but always great to kind of have an eye out for.
1: Yeah. So if you would notice something, what do you recommend? Every, I know every situation is going to be slightly different, uh, but especially if you're a treating therapist and, um, you might suspect someone on your caseload has, uh, might have an, an an issue around an eating disorder.
2: Yeah, and, you know, every a young person is a little different, and I, I think you're right. So if you have a relationship where you have the opportunity to engage with that young person, that's what I would often recommend. Can you, is there a, a private time, you know, to approach them and, um, you know, hey, I've noticed that, you know, you're not sitting with your friends at the lunch table anymore. I've noticed that, you know, you haven't, uh um, you know, been packing a lunch or, you know, just, you know, noticing, kind of using those statements of like, I've seen something, I care about you. Um, can you explain a little bit more? I'm, I'm not saying that the young person necessarily will come right out and say, yes, I've been restricting my food or I've been engaging in a compensatory behavior, but you're sort of opening the door to learning a little bit more. Goodness, you don't know. Are you going to find out that maybe um, there's a food insecurity situation going on at home? And that's that's something different, obviously, but also very important to ask. Um, But you also might find, you know, that you are opening that door to talking with that young person about, you know, are they under some pressures with a sports um, activity or or something? You know, they may dismiss it, but you've kind of tried. So if you if you're able to, I might initiate with um, with them. I might also, if you are working on a team or with other individuals, I'm thinking even at school, you know, kind of reaching out to the classroom teacher. Hey, have you noticed any of these other changes? And again, from the, the standpoint of you're looking out for someone, you're trying to, to see, is there a baseline change here? Is there something to be sort of concerned about? Um, you know, in your personal lives, I think, you know, those are often trickier to navigate, whether it's someone in your own family or a neighbor, you know, your friend. I'm thinking um, oftentimes our adolescents, they might be really close with, say, the parents of their friend, um, And so sometimes they might disclose to that person or that person might, you know, get some other indications. Or sometimes it's the young person's friend says something to their, their parents. So there are all sorts of pathways for that. But I think, again, it's about being as judgmental as possible. It's about being as curious, like what's happening and what's driving this. And, and if I can make any recommendation to family and therapists is that um, we carry a lot of our own stigmas around this too, that um, we carry stigmas that go both ways. So I think we carry stigmas that one can reinforce, like sort of dieting culture or, you know, kind of weight loss or whatnot but we also can reinforce some of the stigmas around like okay well you know you're just you're supposed to eat healthfully and like you can just fix it right you can just stop doing this to yourself like you know um that that parts it's really this these are really challenging disorders um and so i know it's kind of a long-winded sort of thought but yeah that's sort of what i would be starting with is try to make that connection try to get more information um you know, just figure out where, you know, is there something else you can learn there?
1: And you you mentioned the best Ted Lasso quote is, be curious, not judgmental.
2: Oh, that's right. Did because... I uh, did I steal that? I also say I steal some of that from our um, um, mental health first aid training. It's all about <laughs> listening non-judgmentally. But you're right, Ted Lasso as well.
1: Absolutely. Uh, when in doubt, go back to Ted Lasso. <laughs> uh, so speaking of social media, um, so is, I'm, I'm, a little older than you are lindy so (laughs) when i was growing up we didn't have the social media but does that play a role do you think in in eating disorders that you've noticed or oh um, my
2: goodness um you know i'm sure there are um studies out there and i do know you know there are some with social media impacts um or even just digital impacts um of things that reinforce eating disorders um so there are all sorts of things right now we have um You know, fitness trackers who like, you know, they're tracking our movements and can create can kind of reinforce maybe some of those more um, obsessive or compulsive behaviors around movement or exercise, calories burned, etc. I know it's not quite social media, but I do think it it can tie in to that. Right. There's a lot. The other thing with social media, too. um, You know, there's kind of rampant posting of all sorts of things. I'm sure Um, it wouldn't be uncommon for any of us, um, even us older folks. So, yes, Dennis, I'm a little younger than you, but actually not super tech savvy or, um, you know, kind of, right, I live in that kind of in-between part. I didn't grow up with social media, but um, I definitely engage in it now. But I'd find hard pressed to not turn on, you know, to scroll through my feed feed. And uh, not see a friend of mine or a colleague of mine posting about health supplements or their workout or um, the meal that they're having. Um, I probably could survey at any given time on my friends list. There's probably a number who are going through some sort of health journey or diet. And again, it could be all perfectly healthy and normal. But I think you turn, you know, to a young person, they're seeing those things, too. They're also going through a time period where in adolescent development, it's very common to start doing, you're figuring out your own identity um, and you're, you're doing social comparison and you're seeing people look a certain way, certain bodies, you might be seeing them engage in certain physical activities. So I think there's the pressure piece and there is obviously, um, you know, a whole sort of dark underside to some of the social media where there are accounts that are, sort of dedicated to you know facilitating eating disorder behavior or are reinforcing to it as well as other types of you know self-harm so um I think there's that piece but for most of our young people it's just sort of being bombarded with the pressures the the seeing um and you know I think about me growing up you always you know you there is in our culture a lot of um value and preoccupation with certain body types, right? Or how particularly young men or how men and women should look and what's beautiful or what is valued. Um, And I remember, you know, I would get that from TV shows or at the grocery store, you know, the magazines, but our young people now, 24 hours a day, they can get bombarded with that, that message. So I think there are, there are a lot of um, subtle and implicit as well as really explicit ways that, um, Social media can play a role in eating disorder. Um,
1: well, and even as you said, the word "feed." Yeah. You know, in terms of a, of a social media kind of can make that. You know, it sort of is what's what's happening. And I know a local occupational therapist here that works in adolescent mental health. That's obviously one of the first things they do when when folks come inpatient is they 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 take their phones or their their phones don't come with them. And I asked her about it, and she said it's actually very. Um, soothing for them to not have access to their phone, which I thought was interesting that it, for for some of them, it really reduced their stress level. I don't know if that's been something you've seen or, um, or not.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think for some of my young people, I've seen, you know, that initial increase in anxiety over not having connection to that. You know, there's a lot of positives to tech and our social media avenues for connection and, and things, but there is, I have often similarly seen a y- lot of young people feel a bit of freedom from, much like even grown-ups, right, too, or adults, like, oh, thank goodness, like, I don't have to feel pressured to look at this, I don't have to feel um, pressured to um, post something, or get likes, or, um, or see these images, I can kind of exist in a world, you know, kind of in my own mind, which is, is very different, and I, I definitely think that can be very freeing, and, um, Um, Kind of take some of that that pressure off as well. Yeah, Um,
1: absolutely. So when you think about like I I think eating disorders in terms of it from an occupation standpoint, you know, obviously it's uh, eating is an occupation that we're we're doing uh, three times a day or five times a day or, you know, depending on the uh, the the advice that you're following. But yeah, does that make it more difficult? You would say from a treatment standpoint? Um, or even an, eva- an evaluation or diagnostic standpoint, because it is something we, we have to do daily.
2: Yeah, you know, so it's it's such an interesting um, thing is that, you know, yeah, eating is essential to our existence, it's essential to our health. And it is something that re- recurringly you, you are meant to do throughout um, one's day. So I think that it can make treatment really challenging, um, because it really involves, depending on what sort of severity or level of illness someone might be experiencing, but it it involves intervention um, in a much broader scope. So it is often why a lot of, you know, for example, for a lot of our young people, they do, um, they recommend family-centered or family-based care, where the families are part of the care too, because oftentimes with adolescents and, you know, in our, our younger people, um, you know, who's doing the meal preparation who's doing the shopping who's doing you know it's often you know it's involved it's a very much often dependent on the family members um and also there is an oversight piece as well as like a understanding piece that needs to happen from the whole family unit and so that you know and you think about the people you've worked with or I think about my own family and um how challenging it would be to take days off of work or how challenging it would be to get the family together to come on board to support someone's treatment, just the intensity of it, like you said, because it's multiple times a day. um, That is not feasible for a lot of families and or um, clinical sort of settings. So um, I think there are those logistical challenges um, as well as, you know, particularly with an adolescent, and I'm talking maybe more for someone who has more severe level of illness, who needs more supervision, like to provide supervision and, or that sort of level of oversight to a 15 year old, like to be with someone around the clock is really challenging. So I think there's that piece. And then there's also the element in treatment where you're trying to simultaneously break some of the eating disorder thoughts and behaviors that are kind of ingrained in a young person or in the person who's experiencing the disorder, um, while also trying to, to help them occupationally function better. And so you're, you're, um, it's not in some ways quite the same as, you know, say for example, um, another maladaptive, um, sort of um disorder say something like substance use you know you're trying to get the person to stop using the substance as part of the recovery well in eating disorder the pathology is around is around the food and so it's not just about getting them to eat again or to eat differently you know or just so it's it's also about figuring out ways to cope and to um engage because they have to continue to engage in that occupation they can't just stop it or so
1: so so it's really challenging. So from a, a scope of practice standpoint, what would you say, like, what are the types of things that um, you're going to do as part of your, your evaluation and part of your treatment in terms of, you know, um, are you looking at meal preparation? Are you looking at, um, you know, ADL types of things depending on some of the issues they might be having?
2: Absolutely. So, well, as you know, and many of our listeners know, um, some of your scope is determined by, um, you know, what are the other are the other folks you're working on the team, and what makes the most sense to divide within your particular skill sets, um, as well as what's the level of collaboration sort of happening. Um, but I will say, I think there has been an underutilized, and some of the research would show this too. Um, some underutilization of OT and um, of our practitioner base and what we can address with them. And, you know, I've read some different studies and some um, just patient accounts because it's not just about, you know, uh, weight restoration, for example. It's not just about um, restoring the physical elements of one's life or, um, you know, it's not just about regaining um, appropriate eating patterns for a lot of, for everyone, it every patient I've seen, it's also about like, how do I live my life again? How do I find meaning and pleasure in, um, in leisure activities? How do I, um, right? You have to eat all the time. How do I somehow find a way back to eating socially again or eating and um, preparing food? Like this, the stuff you have to do every day, um, from our young people, a lot of it's been about how do I reintegrate back to school or how do I, you know, learn focus in school? But, so I think there's a lot of these really cool opportunities. Some of the big ones, um, kind of along your initial question, some of the big things that I've worked on are meal prep and planning. And I worked with a dietitian actually in a lot of my group treatments and we work, um, together on bringing our respective expertise together to do meal preparation activities and helping the young people, um, gain sort of competence in the skill, skill of meal prep while dealing with the anxiety around everything from touching the food, seeing certain kinds of food, consuming the food, socializing together with other patients around food. Um, that's a big thing too. And so um, we've done that. I have done um, practice activities where we've done like a mock sleepover and they've had to order pizzas and um, have the pizzas delivered to the clinic and, you know, engage in, some of those proxies to what you might have as, you know, a social activity that might not be uncommon. Um, Going to restaurants, so in more of an outpatient or community-based settings is like going through the process of going to the restaurant. Um, I've done all sorts of things for some, you know, some people, um, even those ADLs, a little less common, but ADLs, so like bathing, dressing, most of my young people were not, physically or cognitively um limited in their ability to do those but they may um again with body image issues or challenges may not have wanted to dress a certain way or I've had some who've neglected hygiene because they don't want to touch their bodies or see their bodies um and so yeah working on distress during ADLs is something we've done um I often find another one leisure so finding enjoyable activities a lot of my young people um you know, they've spent a lot of their time kind of maintaining their eating disorder. So finding other enjoyable things, um, particularly, and then also some re-education around movement and exercise. What that's another thing is that oftentimes movement and exercise are restricted in eating disorder treatment because sometimes it can be used as a behavior to, you know, facilitate or maintain the eating disorder. And, but that's also something we want folks to be doing as part of a healthy lifestyle too. And so it's about retraining that in healthy ways. So, um, and, and so, yeah, kind of looking at that can be a, a piece of, of that or helping, I've helped a lot of young people find alternative leisure while they maybe were more, um, restricted around what kind of movement, like if they were, I was a track star, but now I can't do that for a while. So there's an identity piece there too. So kind of finding other things that they might discover that are enjoyable. So
1: video games, for example, Yeah. I don't know. Or, get, them on, <laughs> get them on video games, always, always a good thing. Um, so you talked a little bit about inpatient and outpatient. Can you talk a little about how that role for occupational therapy might be different based on those two settings?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, in general, a more inpatient or a more intensive, um, setting there might be, you know, oftentimes that means that the, the young person might have more intensive, physical or mental or medical sort of intensities, or they need more supervision around the eating. So we are focusing, you know, probably at that point a little more on some of that initial stabilization, getting, um, some of the more that you'll probably find a little more focus on the meals and the eating piece and the, um, probably the, the cognitive therapy piece that the other therapists are doing, but, um, really hitting hard those, those driving, um, Thoughts and behaviors, um, and then as they, you know, get a little bit healthier with um, some of their feed, you know, their eating patterns and maybe some tools around coping, um, you might start to see then, you know, we're talking about leisure now, or you know. So I think that is just sort of a general um, thought. Outpatient um, again they might be under less supervision and, you know, they might have some more tools under their belt for managing their eating disorder. So maybe you are doing, um, that next level up of the school. You're looking at the social, the community integration piece. Um, I've done kind of all of this in inpatient and an outpatient, but, um, again, it's really dependent to on kind of the severity of the illness your young person's experiencing and where they are at their stage of recovery. Um, something, you know, that's important to note is that, um, you know, our our particular young person coming into more intensive care, like inpatient or a partial hospitalization program, um, they probably are um, under or malnourished in a a significant enough way that, you know, we know how our our brains don't work particularly well um, processing high-level thoughts and making, you know, different choices and learning. It's hard to learn on a malnourished brain. So you're just thinking that you're going to layer up the kinds of activities that you're doing Mm -hmm. um and what their brains and bodies are able to take in at a certain period of time
1: now is would would nationwide be involved in some level in helping like a a student transition from inpatient as they as they move to outpatient, or are they working with the school um obviously working with the family to to help support the young person as they're as they're discharged they can be successful
2: absolutely so you know the program um you know, at nationwide and similar to some other of our pediatric programs, um, in, um, Ohio, we have another program to, um, one, it's important to know there's, there's actually not a lot of care available to young, uh, adolescents and adults with eating disorders. There's not a lot of options. Um, you often will see families, um, travel across the country to go to treatment programs, particularly more intensive ones. But, um, at our hospital, they, um, because it's all the, the, The sort of three steps of the program uh, or the levels of program, um, there is a lot of coordination that happens between inpatient for medical, then partial hospitalization to intensive outpatient. Those teams meet together and decide what level of care is appropriate for the client, advocating for higher or lower levels of care, um, transition to, you know, or discharge to a different level of care. Um, So that's really highly coordinated. But, um, and some people, some of the young people will go back to their you know, their local communities for outpatient care if they're not close in town or they, you know, um, they don't need to come to Nationwide for that. But, um, and there's a lot of actually private practitioners, particularly uh, medical dietitians, that do a lot of um, private um, eating disorder care. But um, the team will help with that transition. Everything from meeting, um, our nationwide program has a school teacher, so that helps with keeping up with school, like while or to whatever levels uh, appropriate, while the young people are under the care. But they also coordinate a lot with helping them reintegrate back to school. OTs in our program help with that too. Um, and uh, the nationwide program really hinges on the family some level of family involvement. So they're kind of involved from the get-go, um, because particularly because of the age group.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And then in terms of insurance, is, um, are there issues getting occupational therapy covered to work with this population? Or, I mean, I know obviously it's going to be very dependent on the setting, but, um.
2: Yeah, so you have uh, tapped into my lowest level of expertise here. (laughs) Um, so I will tell you in my, um, my program work, um, the way we didn't bill for, like, um, our individualized services because we were lumped into the per diem sort of mm-hmm. charge.
1: So part of the room rate, the insurance pays X amount of dollars per day. Um, so for that, it's really about advocacy from the occupational therapist to make sure they're in the ear of the, probably the medical director for the unit to show occupational therapy's value um, related to the services you're providing.
2: Absolutely. And we've had a lot of, um, a lot of um, Good luck with um, having advocates as the medical director from the medical directors of the eating disorders program um, and been able to work out, you know, um, they see a lot of value in um, the therapist coming and being part of that program and figuring out how to make that sort of, yeah, um, investment work for them and um, Our, our program also has massage therapy and that is, um, they, which is also part of our department and they go into, um, because they do a lot of stress and relaxation for, um, for the patient. So that's another interesting thing I hadn't seen really anywhere else that I had worked before. But, um, I do know that when I worked in the clinic too, we'd had our, um, uh, utilization reviews. We had a, a a person just there who that was their whole thing was getting coverage for the the patients, dealing with a lot of denied coverage. It's a really challenge. There's a, you could pull up on Google. There's all sorts of articles about challenges with insurance coverage for eating disorder treatment. But you know one of the the really scary and sad things is that um, sometimes if an insurance company doesn't think you're in quote sick enough, they're not going to improve your treatment. Um, but what does sick enough look like? And I think that's really challenging because you're often telling a patient, you know, or their families like who, you know, are experiencing significant mental and and physical health concerns, but uh, you don't really meet the criteria for your insurance to cover this. Um, So there are a lot of challenges in that way, but um, I'm sure someone else could probably speak even more (laughs) to how some of the billing in that
1: and I do think a lot of a lot of times in mental health, as you said, we're covered as part of the room rate. So it's really important for us, especially in training hospitals, to make sure that occupational therapists have a, a strong role. We love our, our recreation therapy uh, friends for sure, um, but it really is you know to ensure that uh, our scope of practice is is important and it's different. I know just on one of the AOTA listservs, uh, someone recently saw there was a a rec therapist that was work you know working on. ADL goals uh, in a mental health setting. And those are things that um, we just have to be really strong on behalf of the profession to ensure that, you know, the services that we're providing um, continue to be provided uh, at a, at a skilled level of care.
2: Absolutely. Uh, And then, you know, different states too, if, um, if they fall under, you know, those qualified mental health providers, is that something too that allows someone to different opportunities for billing you know, for their services. It's such a, yeah, a wide variety, but I think that advocacy piece. um, And again, my experience has been very much like once they see the things that we can do and that we're offering their patients, um, they, there is often tremendous value seen in that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges that, that come with working with, with some of these patients?
2: Yeah, um, I think I touched a little on just, you know, I think the cost, the time, the cost both in terms of time for the families, money for the families, um, the lack of available care, um, that is really challenging. I think, you know, your heart is in wanting to help these young people, um, but having the, there's a lack of resources and there's a lack of programs. Even in our program, um, the wait lists are incredibly long and um, we're not, typically talking about disorders or uh, an issue that kind of can, you know, I think about, I go to the dentist and they say, oh, you got a cavity, but we can kind of wait, we can wash this for the next year and it you'll be, you know, no big deal. Um, These are not wait and sees for a lot of um, people. um, And so not being able to access that care can be really challenging. I think sometimes when thinking about patients specifically, um, there's a couple things that I have found challenging. One, and when I've had students in this setting too, um, you know, there is sometimes this misperception that the that the young people aren't ill, or that they aren't having challenges, because they might present very, if you will, you know, typically, and they're talking, and they're, they're laughing, and it's different than you'd expect, you know, and, um, and I think there's a lot of shift that you have to do that the, there can be some subtleties around what illness looks like, and so I had to, you know, I think I had to do a lot of experience with that. And you really have to be open to kind of challenging your mind about what illness looks like. Um, And, you know, not underselling them and also not um, overestimating, you know, so because I would see patients that, you know, if I had met them as a babysitter for my kids, I'd think, wow, you know, this person's really, you know, um, on top of their game, and they're, they're doing really well. Um, But then if you'd seen them, you know, at the meal or talking with their families, like you see a different side. So I think there's that piece. Um, you have to really challenge. I think another thing is you really have to challenge your own uh, stigmas around eating, weight, um, all of the, the things that are part of um, kind of our, our body health. And I did do a lot of relearning, I think, about w- did I really have a healthy relationship with food or what sort of pressures did I, you know, have I picked up socially and how do you not translate those to your patients? So I think that's, that's, it's a really big challenge. It's everything about, you know, you, you'll start noticing it. Or if you're working with this, you know, population, I started noticing, um. you know, even just like the average dinner out with friends, like, oh my gosh, how many people are talking about, you know, good food, bad food, how many cal- and it's just stuff like that. It, it was a big challenge, a big change in the way I perceived um, all of that culture. And it's a big challenge not bringing it into the clinical setting with, with these young people. But uh, those are some of my big kind of hitters mm-hmm. across that board, but.
1: Gotcha. And then the, the opposite. So what, what do you find to be rewarding about working with this population Are the things that you really appreciate about working with folks with eating disorders?
2: Well, you know, I'm cheesy. I, I find working with young people to sort of be rewarding <laughs> across the board, but I think you know, seeing young people who, um, particularly in the adolescent population, sometimes you do see recovery. Um, you know, they're they're more. Um, you know, there's more neuroplasticity there. There, you know, there's had been potentially less time for, um, say, the eating disorder. Um, experiences to be quite more ingrained. So sometimes there's that reward of like you do see change um, in the periods of time you work with them, but really it's the young people. I think their drive to do one of the hardest things in their lives, if not the hardest thing, that is really rewarding to me to watch them try, especially, you know, you mentioned earlier um, talking about comorbid, you know, um, diagnoses. A lot of our young people, Um, have experienced trauma and, you know, they're overcoming that or they're in treatment with um, their families. And goodness, you know, being a young person and having an eating disorder and having to do treatment with your family and all the dynamics that come with that is is a lot. And even in the the most well-functioning families. And so just how brave they are to to try this and do this every day um, is really motivating to me. Um, and they are often very fun young people, and they're really creative. So I I've enjoyed that part.
1: Gotcha. And I I just actually yesterday, uh, my former job, one of my coworkers had a daughter that had a pretty significant eating disorder, and I guess I, we never I don't know if we ever say they are uh, are cured of an eating disorder, but I, I hadn't seen her or the daughter, you know, for over two years um, since COVID really, and just saw them out and. Uh, the daughter appeared to be doing great and the mom's an overshare she's not an OT so it's surprising that she's an overshare as well but you know just said how great her daughter was doing and that you know how much better she had had done and and really the daughter kind of agreed and and of course any uh teenager would be embarrassed whenever your mom's talking about you in public Uh, but you know it seemed to be doing really really well so I'm sure that once people kind of are um, are on the upswing and doing better, obviously for any of the, any patients we work with is always uh, a good thing for us to see. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, if someone is really interested, um, an occupational therapist or an occupational therapy assistant or, or a student that's, that's kind of interested in this population, where they might go other than of course, occupationaltherapy.com uh, to, to kind of find out more about it and to, to learn more about the population.
2: Yeah, so, well, I think, you know, some of my earlier, you know, thoughts about, you'll probably see this, these diagnoses across settings um, from adolescent, you know, child and adolescent care all the way through adulthood. Um, most commonly, I, I, I'm often recommending, you know, for someone is, um, you're more likely to work with this population in a mental health setting. Um I also I also think having mental health background can be very this I always talk about eating disorder it's um it's actually a pretty fascinating intersection between physical you know function sort of diagnoses and mental health um because they're really deeply entwined between the two sort of if you will systems um but you are oftentimes some of the primary you're going to be you know in mental health settings having that skill set of really understanding um, thoughts and how they drive behaviors and, um, you know, again, someone not choosing sort of um, to have these experiences, you know, so mental health is a great place to start. Um, I think that, um, you know, there is obviously some specialized programs. So looking at are there adult programs near you or um, community health agencies or, um, you know, hospital settings that specialize in eating disorder treatment. There's usually a program in most hospitals, Um there's a program here on our Ohio state campus. So, you know, there's, you know, collegiate level, you know, that's very common too. So um, there's, I think capstone obviously is somewhere I, for my students, I often am like, Hey, you want to specialize in this, or you want to get some more opportunities. So there's a lot more creativity you can get with that capstone experience, but um, a new therapist or an existing therapist, so mental health settings, specialized um, hospitals or community settings, um, you know, there's always that opportunity to sort of start your own thing, right? Or I said, you know, you never know. Ever, some people are really creative, more creative than I am. But most of the dietitians I worked with have went on to start their own private practices. Now that does have its own financial barrier to a lot of families. Um, but my goodness, I could see an OT partnering in private practice with a, a dietitian or someone else too, you know, but... Um,
1: gotcha. And then you're also at... A huge advocate, I know, for um, uh, first aid mental health training as well, correct?
2: Absolutely. So I'm a a youth mental health first aid um, instructor, and I think that that is a great place, too, to gain – eating disorders is one of the things they they talk about in the training, but it's a broad, obviously, for many people, a broad training. But um, I think that's another great place to start, too, is just looking – how do you look for changes and support a young person who's in non-crisis and or crisis?
1: And we'll have some information about the first aid mental health uh, in our handout that goes along with this as well. So, well, Dr. Weaver, thank you so much for your time and your expertise on this subject. I know it's been, um, you know, we I think we're always trying to find new resources uh, to try to learn about, you know, some some of these parts of practice that are important, but don't always have a, a lot of um, resources out there for therapists to learn. So, thanks so much for your time
2: of course and you know there um we've got some good ot chapters in some of our textbooks i can link you to i think the national eating disorder uh, association website is incredibly helpful to friends families practitioners there's even a spotlight somewhere about an OT, someone who went on to be an ot so um lots of cool stuff um out there and Um, Not a ton of research, but I think a great opportunity for um, our practitioners as well. Thanks for having me.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Dr. Weaver. Have a great day.
2: You too.